Stephen Salt is by um, Alexander Mott, who is a PhD student at the MIT Epidemiology Unit at the university. So he's going to be talking, like I say, about how you make sense of the evidence that's out there about you know, how to live a healthy lifestyle. And I'm sure all of us are confused by the things that we're reading, the media, or things that we see on TV about what we should eat, what we shouldn't eat, how much exercise we need. Um, but hopefully, um, Alexander can help us make sense of that. So I'd like to hand over to Alexander now. Thank you very much. Okay, good evening everyone. It's very encouraging to see such a large turnout here, especially at the end of the day when all of you could be at home enjoying a nice big bowl of salad or at the gym, doing some cardio or lifting some weights, right? I'm sure that's on everyone's uh, priority list. So before we begin, I'd just like to do a quick poll, uh, a quick show of hands, how many people have eaten dinner before coming to the talk? So I guess these are the smart people, maybe. <laughs> uh, let's try this one. Who's having dinner after the talk then. Okay, so that's the uh, large majority, and uh, no pressure doing an evening lecture where most everyone else is uh, going for dinner after. So I must offer a quick disclaimer that I claim no responsibility for spoiling anyone's appetite. So this is the scope of what we'll be covering. Firstly, the burden of disease in the UK as well as globally, making sense and appreciating the public health burden of different conditions. And then we move on, uh, sorry, I've termed this uh, chapter problems, problems and more problems. Um, second would be understanding the evidence base in the medical sciences, starting with the hierarchy of evidence, moving on to different research methodologies, and what exactly informs our public health guidance that you see uh, from the government. And this chapter is termed science, the stuff out of this, and why this is so you'll find out later. Then we move on to the interesting bits on the dietary guidance for public health and likewise for physical activity and exercise. And the bonus thing, the most juicy segment is at the end, the practical tips that all of us and how we can incorporate the science into our everyday lives. So this chapter is uh, termed Show Me the Money. So you can probably tell by now that I'm quite a big movie fan by all these uh, references. So this is Tom Cruise uh, in the movie Jerry Maguire, where he plays an agent and he's trying to secure and maintain his contract with his client, who is an American, a professional American football player. And I must admit, it's rather stressful preparing for this presentation, an hour-long presentation for a diverse group of audience. So this is a mental uh, representation of how I think the talk would turn out. And that's the mental state that I'm going to be in at the end of the talk. <laughs> Although not quite as good looking as uh, Tom Cruise, obviously. So before I show you the money, let's talk about problems, problems, and more problems. 
This uh, rectangle or area you see here represents the global burden of disease. And the metric that we're using here is the disability adjusted life year. So for short, it is called DALI. And so this, uh, we'll come back to this slide again, but let's revisit what a DALI is. A DALI is an important uh, public health metric because it comprises of two measures, the years lived with disability or abbreviated as YLD and the years of life loss abbreviated as YLL. So let's talk about years of life loss first. So imagine if a person is born on day one here and the average life expectancy in the world is about maybe 75 years of age. And unfortunately, if this person passes on at the age of 60, then we get 15 years of life loss because 75 minus 60 gives you 15. So that's years of life lost. Moving on to years lived with disability, and this accounts for our quality of life. So throughout our lifespan from childhood all the way to our adulthood, we might encounter different injuries or illnesses at different life stages. So this accounts for our quality of life. And now we can understand why the DALI is an important public health metric, because it not just only accounts for our lifespan, but also our health span or our quality of life as well. So coming back to the global burden of disease, each rectangular or square, the area of each segment will be proportionate to the percentage of disability adjusted life years. And the blue color-coded regions uh, represent the chronic diseases like cardiovascular disease, cancer, and type 2 diabetes. The red-coded regions are infectious disease, so landmark examples include HIV AIDS and malaria. And the green segments represent the burden due to accidents, for example, motor vehicle collisions. And if this is the global burden of disease, one might be more interested in the UK burden of disease, but maybe both of them might be more concerned about Brexit negotiations than our health now. But in, in any case, we'll take a look at the UK burden of disease. If we shrink the global burden of disease down and juxtapose this with the UK burden of disease, we can very clearly see that there's an over-representation of the chronic diseases like type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and cancer. So these are known as the big three lifestyle-related chronic conditions that both you and I can do something about in our lifestyles to prevent from happening. Let's focus on the UK burden of disease for today. Uh, so what we've been talking about so far are outcomes or diseases. So you might be interested, or what about the risk factors that causes these particular outcomes? So we can break the chart down and recategorize the outcomes according to the risk factors. On the horizontal axis, you see the, again, the metric, the disability adjusted life year, or DALI, comprising the totality of our public health concerns. And just to reiterate, the red areas represent the infectious disease, blue for chronic disease, and green for accidental injuries. On the vertical axis are the risk factors or the putative causes of the outcomes. And these are things that we can fix in order to prevent the outcomes from happening. And so you can see at the top of the priority list are occupational risks. And you can see that accidental uh, burden is attributable to a portion of occupational risks. And the other segments are the musculoskeletal disorders and some of the chronic disease burden is attributable to occupational risk. And other things on our to-do list are air pollution and other environmental risks.
except that I haven't given you the entire picture here. So here is the grand review. The full list of risk factors accountable for the UK burden of the disease. And you can see right at the top, number one risk factor is dietary risk. And amongst the top 10 is also low physical activity. And if you look in between these two major modifiable risk factors, you see a constellation of other risk factors like high body mass index, high systolic blood pressure, alcohol and drug use, high fasting plasma glucose, and high total cholesterol. And to add insult to the injury, these constellation of risk factors are inextricably linked to diet and physical activity. So imagine if all of us as a society, as the whole UK, if all of us can change our dietary behaviors and improve our physical activity levels, imagine the amount of public health burden that can be saved if we just tackle these two modifiable risk factors. So now that we have strong epidemiologic evidence of the importance of physical activity and diet, it doesn't help that nutrition is a subject of much controversy. So we have different diet books available, uh, different brand name diets, classifications of diets, and the multi-billion dollar supplement industry. So we have the vitamin and mineral supplements as well as the sports supplements. And it doesn't help that the very influential magazines are demonizing specific nutrients and foods as well. And the advent of social media has opened the doors to a diversity of opinions on the topic. And it seems like anyone can be an uh, expert on nutrition now. Like everyone's quick to offer their quick fix on how to lose weight and how to improve their health. So what we're left with is this overwhelming tsunami of information that everyone faces on a day-to-day -day basis and who's to know what sources to trust anymore? So I brought in another one of my good friends, Matt Damon, from the movie The Martian. And to make sense of this uh, cacophony of conflicting information, uh, Matt Damon put it better than anyone else. So I'll just leave him to explain how to fix this. So he put it better than anyone else. Uh, we need to science the sh st stuff, stuff, stuff out of this. So let's start off with the uh, hierarchy of evidence. This is a very attractive uh, headline printed by the mirror. Uh, it says the chocoholics diet, eat chocolate all day and lose half a stone in two weeks. Uh, probably the, the only way this is happening is if you indeed have a magic mirror, then you might lose two stones in two weeks. But uh, this study was actually, uh, this, sorry, this headline was actually based on a study published in a rather prestigious medical journal, JAMA. So it looked at the association between more frequent chocolate consumption and higher body mass index. But the journalist from the mirror might not have picked out that this was a cross-sectional study. So to understand what a cross-sectional study is, let's examine the hierarchy of evidence. This is a pyramid showing you uh, different levels of research evidence with the red, red areas showing you weaker studies and the green areas, uh, stronger quality studies. And this pyramid can be further divided into two segments. The bottom segment are what we call the observational studies, where the key feature is that people are studied in the natural context or in free living situations. And the top half of the pyramid, the randomized control trials and the laboratory-based studies are experimental studies and the key difference is that an intervention is being prescribed or people are being randomized to different diets or interventions. So let's examine the cross-sectional study first. 
Um, if we picture an imaginary timeline running from the year 2000 to 2010, a cross-sectional study is akin to taking a snapshot in time, for example, in 2005, and we have a study population and we want to examine the effects of an exposure like diet soda consumption on body mass index. And we might find that there's a positive relationship between uh, diet soda consumption and high body mass index, but because we are looking at a single snapshot in time uh, in 2005, we are unsure about the temporality of the exposure and the outcome. So it might be drinking diet soda causes higher obesity rates, or it might be that obese individuals tend to drink more soda to better compensate for their weight. So that's the cr uh, cross-sectional study. And moving a level up is the case control study. So the case control study, the difference is that you begin in the present time, in the year 2010, with cases of people who already have the disease and, and controls who are people in the healthy population. And then you get these two subgroups to look back in time to recall their past exposures. So maybe the cases have consumed high amounts of red meat and the controls lesser amounts of red meat. And from these proportions, we can cross-tabulate an odds ratio. Now the key advantage of the, uh, sorry, the, the key disadvantage of the case control study is quite obvious. It is what we call recall biases. So the cases might be better primed to recall their past uh, negative behaviors due to their disease status. And, but the advantage of the case control study is that because you're starting off with a present time already with people with the disease, you can study very rare diseases in the population. So coming up a level up is the prospective cohort study. So the name will tell you everything. You begin in the present time in the year 2000 with people already consuming high amounts of red meat and people consuming low amounts of red meat. And you follow these individuals forward in time to look for future events of disease. And there might be a higher proportion of the high red meat consumers having disease. And the reverse might be true for the low red meat consumers. And from this, you can uh, calculate a risk ratio based on the proportions of disease individuals uh, in these two groups. Now, the pros of the prospective cohort study is because you are looking forward in time, having a prospective association. You're more sure about causality, but the cons of the prospective cohort study, together with the rest of the studies that we've been discussing so far, are the effects of confounding. So what confounding is, is that, for example, the high red meat consumers might also tend to smoke more cigarettes, and it might be the cigarette smoking that causes disease and not the red meat. But what we can do about this is to control for confounding using what we call a multivariable statistical model. And through this, we can put in different variables uh, to negate the effects of them. For example, smoking, diet quality, alcohol, even a person's age into this uh, multivariable regression equation. So nearing the top of the pyramid, we're coming there. This is the randomized control trial. And you begin in the present time with a study population and the main difference here from the prospective cohort study is that you randomize people to different interventions. And this would more equitably distribute the confounders between the two groups. And so you have a more fair comparison. And likewise, you follow them forward in time to look for future events. And from this, you can again calculate a risk ratio for developing the particular disease. So the disadvantage of the randomized control trial are due to issues of cost, feasibility, and ethics. 
So it might be pretty easy to study the effects of medicines and pills like fish oil supplements because it's easy to give to people, but it might not be so feasible to study real foods and dietary patterns because imagine providing a set of different foods to a large group of people for 10 over years and then waiting uh, tw 20, 30 years for real disease outcomes to occur. So it's definitely not feasible. But the strength of the randomized control trial is that it provides the gold standard or the strongest level of evidence for causality. What we can do, we can come a step down and do perhaps a laboratory-based uh, randomized control trial. So in this case, instead of waiting for several years forward in time for the disease events to occur, we can maybe wait for a few weeks or months later and take uh, what we call intermediate biomarkers from people, so samples in the blood like blood glucose, blood cholesterol, triglycerides, just to name a few. And the pros of this uh, type of design is that you can more easily control for the background diet because you can give people foods for a shorter period of time. But the disadvantage is that you're using what we call process measures. So these process measures may not actually manifest as actual disease. So the amount of blood glucose or lipids uh, in your blood may not actually translate to real disease endpoints in the future. So now we're at the pinnacle of the pyramid. We're almost there. It's the meta-analysis. So the meta-analysis is a statistical synthesis or what we call a study of studies. And the aim is to examine an overall aggregate effect uh, summarized in a forest plot here. So just allow me to systematically take you through the forest plot. First, uh, each square will represent one study amongst the list of many. And then the size of each square is proportional to the weight assigned to the study, and it's related to the sample size of the study. So the top square will show a big study, maybe consisting of half a million individuals, and the bottom study is maybe a small study comprising of maybe 500 individuals. The horizontal axis shows you the effect size or the risk ratio or relative risk, and the line running down the center you see here is the line of no effect because the risk ratio is equals to one, and so there's no effect. And anything to the right of this line shows that the particular food is harmful, and anything to the left shows the food is protective. So moving on to the width of the horizontal lines spanning each particular study now. So if we look here, this study has a large confidence interval. Uh, the confidence interval is known as the name of the line. And this overlaps the line of no effect, so we cannot be statistically certain that this particular food may be protective for health. Uh, but the one here, you see that the confidence interval doesn't overlap the line of no effect. So we are statistically certain in this study that this food uh, shows a harm of uh, consuming. Now, what we're most interested in in the meta-analysis is the center of the uh, bottom diamond, when you, what you see here. So the center bottom diamond is the point estimate of all the different studies aggregated together. And so this, there's a suggestion that consuming this particular food causes harm because the point estimate is to the right of the line of no effect. But because the width of the diamond overlaps the line of no effect, we cannot be, again, statistically certain that this food causes harm. Now, the meta-analysis is the cornerstone of evidence-based medicine, and it's not just limited to nutrition science. So this is another example of a meta-analysis looking at arthroscopic knee surgery in the treatment of osteoarthritis. 
And in this particular study, the uh, researchers comp compared the effects of surgery versus planal exercise therapy. And you can see that they're not sure whether surgery offers any benefit uh, compared to exercise. In fact, the point estimate shows that it favors the control condition, which is the exercise condition. And so this would inform clinical decision-making of the surgeon that to recommend against arthroscopic knee surgery, because why do a more invasive procedure when you can just do simple exercise therapy, which involves less risk? So we've covered the hierarchy of evidence and different research designs. So what exactly informs our public health evidence? You could probably guess by now that it is the meta-analysis that informs public health uh, guidance. But you can do a meta-analysis of any of the, these single study types. Ideally, you would want to do a, a meta-analysis of a randomized controlled trial, but realistically, the preponderance of evidence is based on prospective cohort studies for reasons we alluded to previously, being very straightforward to study interventions and pills, but not very feasible to study foods and diets, uh, for example, due to logistics, adherence, and ethical issues as well. So now that we have some evidence that red meat is causative of cancer, uh, it might be questionable to randomize people to try different types of red meat. Now, the bottom segment of the pyramid, the observational studies, uh, because we're observing people in the natural settings, we can look at their broad dietary patterns. So do their diets uh, resemble more of a fast food-based pattern or more of a Mediterranean healthy-based uh, diet? So we've covered what informs public health guidance. It's about time I show you some, just some of the money, not the whole money yet. So this is the government dietary recommendations for the UK for diet. It is definitely very comprehensive. It shows you the proportions of different foods uh, and from the different groups we should be eating. It has some guidance on nutritional labels, uh, caloric intakes, as well as uh, some guidance on beverages. But uh, because this table is uh, quite rich with information, I'll default to using a simpler food pyramid for the rest of the presentation. So this is the uh, Harvard School of Public Health Healthy Eating Pyramid. I must admit that it's rather embarrassing to show you information from another university but at least the university is uh, based in Cambridge, not the one here, but the one in Massachusetts. But this is the most important aspect. So the Science Festival organizers have told me that I have the green light as long as I don't show any information from this particular school. So uh, let's just move that aside and focus on uh, Cambridge. So the pyramid here says that the base of our dietary pattern should come from fruits and vegetables, healthy oils and seeds, uh, sorry, healthy oils and fats, and whole grains. And we should derive our protein sources from an equal distribution of plant-based proteins from nuts, legumes, beans, and seeds. And also the higher quality protein sources like fish, lean poultry, and seafood. And now you can see that we should limit the intake of red meat, butter, refined grains, white rice, white bread, sugary drinks, and salt. As you can see, uh, it is actually separated from the contiguous core of the healthy eating pyramid because they are clearly not essential in our diet. And if you look to the periphery, you can see that alcohol and multivitamin supplements are outside the pyramid because clearly they're not essential in our diet. Except for certain situations where you have nutrient deficiencies, then this may play a role. So if we turn the clock back and look back in time, this is the USDA pyramid in the 1990s. 
So it might look rather similar to the uh, contemporary pyramid, but if you juxtapose the two pyramids together, there are some important differences. Um, firstly, uh, red meat and refined grains have been relegated to the use sparingly category, and this is the evidence base behind it. So this is the meta-analysis of red meat and mortality, and the figure here shows you the results for unprocessed red meat, so things that don't have salt and nitrates added to them. And you can see the aggregate effect uh, suggests harm, but because the width of the diamond overlaps the line of no effect, we're not exactly statistically certain that it causes harm. But if we look at processed red meat now, so things that have salt and nitrates added to them, you can clearly see that there's a harm uh, for our longevity if you consume these products. And if we look at total red meat consumption now, you can see that the relative risk is about the same, but now we're more statistically uh, sure of the finding because the confidence intervals are narrower, which means the results are more robust now. So if you find it difficult to give up on your red meat, perhaps uh, you can just stick with the unprocessed red meat and try to avoid processed red meat as much as possible. Coming back to the pyramid, we see that fruits and vegetables have been promoted alongside the ranks of uh, healthy fats and oils and whole grains at the bottom of the pyramid now. And probably no surprises, the meta-analysis for fruits and vegetables show that uh, the consistency across the study. So now you see all the studies lie to the left-hand side of the line of no effect, whereas previously the studies might be to the left, to the right, but you can see a clear consistency from fruits and vegetables here. But there is uh, more recent evidence now that consuming more than your five a day might be beneficial. And this is a different kind of dose, uh, different kind of meta-analysis known as a dose response meta-analysis. And you can see clearly, although there's a tapering off effect at uh, eating five a day, there's additional benefit to be gained at, uh, for consuming 10 servings of fruits and vegetables a day. And so this is the uh, evidence underpinning the BBC news release uh, last year. Uh, that we can extend our life by eating 10 servings of fruits and vegetables. So the biggest, uh, the prize for the biggest jump uh, goes to healthy fats and oils because now we are distinguishing between healthy fats and oils and they now join the ranks of fruits, vegetables and whole grains. So not all fats are created equal. The latest US guidelines have removed the upper limit for daily percentage fat calories while past guidelines have set down about 35% of caloric intake. The present guidelines only call for limiting saturated fat, so these are fats that are mostly solid at room temperature, like butter, to 10% of our calories. And there's no cap now on healthy fats uh, in, for example, all extra virgin olive oil, nuts and seeds. And this is based on strong randomized control trial evidence as you can see in this trial, they compared a usual diet with a low-fat diet, and there's hardly any difference in the cumulative hazard or risk of uh, cardiovascular disease. And another randomized control trial shows that when you compare a controlled diet to a high-fat diet, so this is a high-fat diet supplemented with extra, extra virgin olive oil, so just extra, extra virgin olive oil, as well as nuts and seeds, you can see there's a clear benefit of consuming the higher fat uh, diet, the Mediterranean-based diet, on the risk of cardiovascular disease and mortality. 
So you might want to eschew your fat-free salad dressings that typically replace your beneficial unsaturated fats with salt, starch, and sugar, the three S's that are probably bad for us, and just stick with uh, straight-up extra virgin olive oil. But I must say that please do not take things out of context and uh, I can guarantee if you try this at home, you definitely won't be as slim as this uh, girl in the picture. So that's quite a bit of information to take in, right? Like we have the hierarchy of evidence, the meta-analysis and different figures. So let's take a short breather to enjoy a video clip that recapitulates the evolution of nutrition science. Okay, so it turns out that the amount of cholesterol in a food doesn't actually affect how much cholesterol ends up in your blood. The eggs are probably fine. In fact, we sort of don't even know what cholesterol is. What's a steak? You can't eat the steak. Why not? Turns out that red meat increases your chance of heart attack. You have to cut out red meat. So no steak! Thank you. Godspeed. So I guess just um, ignore everything I've said and 
So this is probably the uh, hundredth time I'm watching this and it still cracks me up. So, <laughs> so this is opportunity to move on to the second segment of the talk now on exercise or physical activity. So if we revisit our healthy eating pyramid now, it turns out that I haven't given you the full picture again. So there's actually another base to the pyramid. So it says that daily exercise and weight control should form the base of our lifestyle. And notice that I said daily exercise and weight control as two separate risk factors because there's a subtle difference between them and contemporary evidence doesn't show that exercise is much any useful for weight loss. So this is one of the latest studies on obesity published in the New England Journal of Medicine, the top journal in medicine. So after this paper was released, Time magazine reported that 30% of the world is now obese or overweight. So that's one in, uh, one in three adults are overweight and obese. And if you look at the country-specific estimates, 68.1% of Americans are overweight or obese. That's more than two in three adults are obese. And I think we're being kind not to round that figure up to 70%. So this is starting to cause a, a global alarm. But there might be hope or there might not be hope. This is the percentage of adults meeting the physical activity guidelines in the US from 2008, the blue bars, to 2013, the orange bars. So you can see no matter how we stratify the population, uh, all adults, males, females, and across the entire spectrum of age categories, you can see that the trend of people doing more exercise is going up. So this is a nationally representative study, uh, and they looked at the prevalence of physical activity and obesity in US counties over 10 years of follow-up. So what they found is that, again, physical activity across the US counties have been increasing because they're generally, uh, generally in green color, but so is the uh, prevalence of obesity, so it's also in green. And then if we put these two figures side by side, the rise in obesity parallels the rise in physical activity. So this gives us a clue that perhaps um, exercise may not be the solution to obesity at the population level. But hang on a minute, we talked about the hierarchy of evidence, right? So let's flick back to that. And this is definitely not a cross-sectional study, I can tell you, because they evaluated changes over 10 years. So that's impressive, changes over 10 years. But this particular study is an ecological study, and it's uh, quite vulnerable to what we call the ecological fallacy, whereby because the unit of study is at the group level, US counties, and this may mask any trends occurring at the individual level. 
So let's jump right up to the top of the pyramid and look at a meta-analysis, not just any meta-analysis, but a meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials. So the aim of this study, just focus on the center box, is to compare weight loss effectiveness of combined diet and activity, diet and exercise programs represented in green against single component programs like diet only in red or exercise only in blue. And the methods was uh, meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials greater than a year in duration in overweight adults. So allow me to walk you through this very complicated forest plot. In the top panel is the effect of the combined programs versus the diet-only programs. And in the bottom panel is combined programs versus exercise-only programs. And on your horizontal axis, you have the weight change in kilograms. So anything to the left of the weight change would be uh, saying that it favors the combined interventions. And anything to the right would favor either diet or exercise. Not both, but either diet or exercise. And if we bring that top diamond all the way down now, we can see that diet is superior to exercise because the results show that the addition of diet to an exercise intervention leads to more weight loss than the addition of exercise to a diet program. And the conclusion is that dietary changes are the key components of weight loss programs. So there's little impact of exercise on obesity and weight loss. So if we reframe things in another way, so what you don't eat is probably more important than what you do. So drinking just two cans of soda will give you 300 calories full of added sugars, nothing else. And doing 30 minutes of rather vigorous sports like singles tennis, this is not doubles, but singles tennis, uh, running and playing football, assuming you're a 70 kilo individual, you would burn about 210 calories. So you're still in a 90 calorie surplus when consuming uh, the two cans of soda. But recall the time travel dietitian in the video, right? He spoke about our Paleolithic ancestors. So just imagine uh, how much sugar cane our Paleolithic ancestors have to eat to get the equivalent of two cans of soda. So our Paleolithic ancestors have to eat about two meters of sugar cane to get the caloric equivalent of two cans of soda. And you can probably guess that, you know, you can down two cans of soda pretty quickly in 30 seconds if you wanted to. But we're not sure if it's physically possible to consume two meters of uh, sugar cane. In fact, uh, I'm not sure if the teeth of our Paleolithic ancestors can withstand uh, two meters worth of chewing. So what we can see is that through modern food processing and the decoupling of whole foods uh, from fiber and nutrients, we can then override our physiological mechanisms that signal fullness and satiety. So we spend quite a bit of time uh, bashing about exercise and saying how hopeless it is for weight loss. But all of this is a moot point if there is a preponderance of evidence showing the health benefits of physical activity that can come independent of weight loss. So there's strong evidence that physical activity reduces the risk of premature mortality, cardiovascular disease, metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, breast and colon cancer, depressions and falls and injuries, and strong evidence that it improves cardiorespiratory and muscular fitness, body composition, bone health, cognitive function, and functional health. 
So if there's ever a miracle pill or drug, it would be exercise that is able to have an effect on such a wide variety of conditions. So this is the Global Physical Activity Guidelines from the World Health Organization. It states that as adults, uh, minimally, we should get 150 minutes of moderate intensity physical activity, preferably spread throughout the week in bouts of 10 minutes uh, duration. Or we can do 75 minutes of uh, vigorous intensity uh, running or the likes, or an equivalent combination of moderate and vigorous activity. So what exactly is moderate activity and what is vigorous activity? And here's a quick test to find out. So I hope this video shows you that it's quite easy to get to a moderate uh, intensity activity level. You just have to uh, maintain an exercise uh, intensity that you can still maintain an easy conversation with a neighbor or a friend. And contrary to popular belief, uh, things like jogging would be vigorous intensity activities. But the most uh, overlooked part of the guidelines are that we should do two or more days of uh, muscle strengthening activity involving all the major muscle groups. And the World Health Organization also says that to get additional health benefit, we should increase our moderate activity to 300 minutes uh, a week or an equivalent combination of moderate or vigorous. So finally, I can show you some information that is from our very own university done by a group of researchers at the MRC Epidemiology Unit. So this is a dose-response meta-analysis, and we just came across this term for the vegetable 10-a-day intake. So this is a dose-response meta-analysis of physical activity. And the researchers compiled data from 24 studies, and because these 24 studies are extremely big, we have about two, over two million individuals included in this meta-analysis. And on the vertical axis, you have the hazard ratio, which is your relative risk. And on the horizontal axis, you have your volume of physical activity. And so each line you see in the figure here represents one single study. And if you look closely in between all the lines, you can see a darker line there. And this is the meta-analytical result of combining all the different studies. This table here shows you the relative risk at different doses or volumes of activity. So the top panel shows you the minimum physical activity guidelines of 150 minutes a week. And this will give you a relative risk of 0.7. So this gives you a 30% reduction in all-cause mortality. And this corresponds to the steep segment of the dose-response curve. The bottom panel shows you the uh, hazard ratio, 0.66, for 300 minutes of moderate activity. And that means you reduce your risk of all-cause mortality by 34%. And this corresponds to the flatter portion of the dose-response curve. 
So you can quite easily see that you get more bang for your buck at 150 minutes of physical activity a week. And there can be continued benefits at 300 minutes a week, but uh, we have to acknowledge that there'll be diminishing returns. But we're quite uncertain about higher physical activity volume. So like if you run a marathon every week or something, we're not exactly confident to recommend in the public health guidelines for these types of uh, volumes, because if you look in the dotted box here, there are only about six studies to inform the dose response curve here. So we're not confident to make a recommendation from this limited amount of data. The next thing I want to talk about is the PIF. Uh, it stands for population impact fraction. So imagine all of us being uh, in a bell curve uh, of individuals. And imagine we can, if we can shift everyone towards meeting the physical activity guidelines of 150 minutes a week. Then we can reduce our, uh, we can reduce the amount of mortality in the whole population by 11.9%. So that's 12% reduction in mortality. So that's a very impressive uh, estimate there. So coming back to our scope, we're almost at the end now. So this is the most juicy bit, some practical tips on how to incorporate the science into our everyday lives. So let's start off with food labels here first. And this is the back of the pack. So it's not the front of the pack, but the back of the pack. So there's a nutrition label at the back of the pack. And what you start off first is to interpret the serving size. So there's a size of a single serving and the total number of servings per container. And then you have the per 100 gram column, which is standardized across all foods to make uh, useful comparisons between foods. And then you have the 50 gram column, which is the actual serving in this particular food. And so you reference the correct column now, and then you base uh, all your readings from this column from this point forward. The next thing to do is to check the energy content. So this product gives you 166 uh, calories. But bear in mind, when, when we use the word calories in everyday parlance, calories actually means kilocalories, or KCAL for short. So we're just contracting uh, kilocalories to calories in everyday speak to make it easier on our tongues. And some labels would have a percentage reference intake, or percent RI you see at the adjacent column. And this product, 166 calories, would represent 8% of a reference intake, uh, assuming that this individual needs 2,000 calories a day. But uh, bear in mind that our adult caloric needs may vary based on our physical activity levels, body composition, whether we have illness or the likes. So step three will be to check the fat content. So remember, we're not exactly worried about total fat now, but we're worried about saturated fat. So your fats uh, can consist of polyunsaturated fats, which are the good ones, and these are typically liquid at room temperature. And then your saturated fat, which is typically solid at room temperature. And the most dangerous of all is the artificial trans fats. And these are also known as hydrogenated fats and oils. And in 2012, in the UK, we have a food manufacturer limit agreement, which means that these uh, trans fats are not banned in the food supply, and they're still circulating there somewhere, but the uh, food supply has agreed to limit their use. So we should still check the ingredient list for the word hydrogenated. And just be very wary of uh, fast food and takeaway items because there's no control over the amount of uh, trans fat that comes in the food because of different frying methods that they use. So step four will be to check for added sugars. Uh, 
The naturally occurring sugars, for example, in fruit are fine, but what we should be concerned about are the added sugars, the things that we add to our products, and we should limit these to 10% of our calories. So these sugars, uh, as mentioned, comprise of naturally occurring or added sugars, but the thing is, you can't really tell from the nutrition label, it just says there carbohydrate and of which sugars. It doesn't tell you what is added and what is naturally occurring. So in order to find this out, you need to look at the ingredients list, and this is typically at the back of the product as well. And here you can see that the naturally occurring sugars come from dried fruit, so that's fine. And stuff like sugar, high fructose corn syrup, anything with an O-S-E at the back would mean it's an added sugar most of the time. So we want to avoid added sugars in our diet. Step five would be to check for fiber. A simple rule of thumb is to look for a carbohydrate to fiber ratio of 10 is to one, because uh, there's a study published in Public Health Nutrition looking to identify uh, healthful whole grain products, and they found that a carbohydrate to, ratio, carbohydrate to fiber ratio of 10 is to one generally identified the most healthful whole grain product. And then we want to look at salt or sodium. This is the thing that uh, I get confused uh, very often. So some labels would use salt and others would use sodium, but they mean the same thing. So the relationship is uh, one unit of sodium, no, sorry, one unit of salt is 2.5 units of sodium because back in school we learned that uh, salt is NaCl, so the other uh, component of salt is chloride. So there's a heavier mass of, uh, involved in salt than sodium. So the public health guidance recommends to limit our salt intake, so not sodium, but salt intake, to less than six grams per day. So six grams is about a teaspoon. So if you think that a soup every now and then is healthy or a vegetarian or vegetable soup is healthy, have you uh, tried a soup that has less than one, tablespoon, uh, one teaspoon of salt? I can assure you it doesn't really taste like soup. So, you know, maybe try not to drink soup too often as well. Now coming to the uh, important part, which is the ingredients list. The ingredients list is uh, listed in order of weight. So the main ingredients are always listed first. So if the first few ingredients are, for example, cream, butter, or oil, it shows that the food is probably unhealthy and the potential allergens are listed in bold. So this is your typical Mars bar. You can see uh, the first two ingredients are right in your face, just added sugars. And this is a perhaps more healthy option, a fruit and nut bar. And the first two ingredients come from natural fruit like dates and healthy fats from cashews. And so you can quite obviously tell which is the healthier product now. But if you look to the Mars bar, there's also a list of other ingredients that are also not very necessary. It's probably to preserve the food or to maintain the consistency of the Mars bar. So in general, a rule of thumb is that if you have lesser ingredients, the product is probably healthier and always check the first few ingredients in the product. So this is the uh, infographic from the British uh, Heart Foundation. Uh, and they want to emphasize, you know, to always look at the order of the weight of the ingredients. So the first, uh, the ingredients with the highest weight are always listed first. So now we are flipping it around and looking at the front of the pack now. So we see this uh, traffic light coding at the front of the pack. So mainly green shows you a healthier choice. Mainly amber means can be a part of a healthier uh, balanced diet. And mainly red shows that you should limit the intake of these foods. And it tells you at a glance how healthy the particular food is. Um, but this 
particular fun label here you see uh, is actually for white bread, which we should be limiting. And to our horror, uh, seeds, fruits, and nuts are almost, you know, like a no-go, almost everything in red. But, and then if we reference the healthy eating pyramid, it doesn't make sense, right? So the seeds, fruits, and nuts should belong to the base of the pyramid, so we should consume more of these products. And white bread, we should be limiting. In fact, it's expressly separated from the contiguous core of the pyramid. So what's becoming of this? So we need to closer inspect the ingredients list. And you can see that the uh, ingredients for the seeds, nuts, and fruit mix comprises an equal proportion of seeds, fruits, and nuts. So that's fine. And the sugars listed here is high because it mainly comprises of the naturally occurring sugars and not the added sugars. And the fat comes from the seeds and nuts in the product. And so there's no real cause for concern uh, for consuming this particular product. Though we need to acknowledge that, you know, uh, nuts, fruits, and seeds are probably quite calorie, uh, calorie dense. So that's perhaps the reason why it's listed mostly in red here. So the bottom line is uh, to use multiple sources to decide if a food is healthy. And firstly, you can base it on the traffic-like symbols found on the front of the pack, and then the nutrition information and the ingredients list, which are at the back of the pack in most cases. And when in doubt, uh, always default to the ingredients list because it provides uh, more transparency. So I just want to show you uh, that healthy eating need not be very expensive. So this, we have this uh, Jordan Super Berry Granola. Uh, it's not too expensive, right? So 722 pounds per kilo. But we have a competitor now here, the Asda Smart Price Muesli, which is only one pound 18, which is about seven times cheaper than uh, this uh, fancy granola we see here. Like obviously from the packaging, you can tell which is more healthy, right? But if we look closer at the ingredients list, this uh, Jordan's granola contains sugar as the second ingredient. And for the Asda Smart Price Muesli, you can hardly find any added sugars to this product. So the clear winner is the Smart Price Asda Muesli for pound eighteen per kilo. And this is the one I take on a regular basis. Um, and this is, also, uh, this is even more evident in the nutrition uh, panel at the back of the label. So the Jordan cereal has more than twice the amount of sugars. So the bottom line is that uh, luxury health branded foods may actually be less healthy than the supermarket basics, but this is only applied in some cases. I, I mean, I, I've probably the only talent I really have is supermarket shopping because you know, that's what I do most of the time. So I'm quite good at looking at the supermarket labels, but you know, other supermarket basics may not be as healthy as this, so don't just buy if it's a supermarket basics, okay? So a brief aside now. Uh, good news is that the order of ingredients by weight also applies to cosmetics and toiletries. So on the left, we have this uh, luxurious regenerating cream, and on the right, we have uh, the Goots basic moisturizing cream. And if you look at the first four ingredients, it's about the same, and these are the main ingredients in the product, so uh, we're not exactly sure what we're paying for, right? So 67 pounds for 50 ml of the regenerating cream and 150 for 100 ml of the Boots basic cream. So I get a feeling that I've made some enemies amongst the women in the audience. Uh, to their husbands, boyfriends, and partners, you're welcome. Um, 
I'm sorry I, I couldn't get this information to you before Valentine's, but at least you're armed with the signs now for, for next Valentine's Day. So again, healthy eating may not be expensive. This is uh, a typical dinner I eat, and I'm going to take you through the exact cost of how much this dinner costs. So the staple, which is the brown rice, costs 99p from Aldi. And I've put it at the top right corner, just so we can keep track of prices that I'm not lying to you. So 99p, and I eat about 100 grams of uh, rice because I, I, do, I do quite a bit of exercise, so I need a bit more. And I'm going to round that figure up to 10p just to be safe. And contrary to popular belief, frozen vegetables or fresh vegetables, there's no difference in most of the nutritional content. So they can be an alternative to fresh vegetables. So this uh, frozen for freshness uh, mixed vegetables costs about 95p for a kilo. And again, I'm going to round out. Uh, the number out to be conservative. So that's uh, 10p per serving. And the most expensive ingredient is probably the turkey breast steak. So that's 5.95 per kilo. And I've uh, decided that this pack will last me for 16 servings because I calculate that you know one serving would have enough level of protein and that's the maximum that we can absorb. But that's another talk for another day, so we'll leave it that for now. So that's 40p for one serving. And then the apples, uh, because you buy it in bulk, you have this uh, bulk price. It's 125 per kilo, so that's, uh, I round it out again to 13p. And the oranges are 158, and I'm going to round it up to 17p. So I'm overestimating most of the items here. And my dinner costs about 90p every day. About 90p every day. So it doesn't, sh it doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't show you that healthy eating has to be expensive, right? And this is not a stingy meal by any means, all right? So it's providing you th about three servings of fruits and vegetables, mainly whole grain, and 35 grams of protein, and 800 calories. So if you imagine, a, a typical person might need 2,000 calories, so this is almost half of what a person needs. And because I, I eat a bit more, I spend a bit more, so for an average person, it might not be 90p, in fact. You know, you just have to be smart about shopping sometimes. So I just want to touch a bit about making regular physical activity as part of your routine. I try to go to the gym to lift weights about three to four times a week, incorporating functional movements that target the major muscle groups. And I also cycle to work uh, almost every day, five days a week. So the most important public health thing to do is to always wear a helmet. And it takes me 17 minutes each way to cycle 5km to the Edinburgh Hospital. So both ways, that makes 35 minutes of moderate activity every day for five days a week. And sometimes I put my work clothes in my bag and I run to work for a change of routine. And so it is actually quite easy to get to the, the physical activity guidelines there. So, you know, I hope th that this presentation has shown you that it is definitely very uh, feasible within everyone's limit to adhere to the public health guidelines. But of course, it also helps to be studying for a PhD in this topic area <laughs> and that your PhD supervisory team consists of uh, internationally esteemed researchers in the field of nutrition and physical activity. So Dr. Soren Braga is my uh, PhD supervisor and he leads the unit's program on physical activity. And Dr. Fumiaki Imamura is my co-supervisor and he's the senior scientist in nutrition. And Dr. Nita Furuhi is the program leader for nutritional epidemiology. I also like to acknowledge uh, Dr. Paul Brown, who's here today. Uh, he's our science communication manager, so he's in charge of making sure that the uh, news release that we put out are okay for everyone to uh, adhere to. 
and also Dr. Gene Adams, who is the course director for the Masters of Public Health program. And of course, I also have to acknowledge our dear guest, uh, Tom Cruise, who showed us the money. And I think uh, Mr. Cruise here has one last uh, word to say about the healthy lifestyle pyramid. So if we just focus on the contiguous base of the pyramid and uh, ignore the peripheral distractions like alcohol and supplements, make daily exercise and weight control primarily using diet because diet we know is more effective and adopt an overall healthy eating pattern comprising of the proportions of these different foods. And Mr. Tom Cruise has this to say to this part of the pyramid. Uh, I actually missed it. So let's... Uh, <coughs> thank you. 